0: We're in a series called Living Hope based out of the book of 1 Peter and so far in this series so far we've seen how we've been given a living hope, we've been given a living word and we've been become living stones and part of our calling is an invitation to living free as we saw last week with Moses and this week we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 so if you have your Bible could you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and we're gonna see how the calling of the Christian is a calling to living fearlessly. And I think it's a very timely word for us in this text because of what's been going on in our nation and how we can respond to it as believers, a call to living fearlessly. Now, the passage we're gonna read, 1 Peter chapter three, raises a number of quite big questions. If I'm honest, I think as we read through it, you'll go, whoa, that's, some of us may not be that familiar with it, and it'll raise some big questions, partly because it opens by addressing women in the ancient world who were married to men who are not believers and might not always have been being treated very well by them. And it's a culture that's very different from ours and that'll raise some questions for us. And there's a, a section about baptism that might raise questions. There's a famous line about Christ preaching to the spirits in prison, which some people in history have taken as evidence that Jesus goes and preaches to dead people after they've died and gives them a second chance to respond to the gospel. And that might, I don't think it does mean that, by the way. But that might also raise questions. So it's not an easy passage, just being honest about that as we read through it. But what unites these various sections, I think, is a very timely word for us in this generation, which is the summons to live fearlessly as the people of God. In fact, I think that's the overriding theme of this chapter, to be fearless as Christians. Fearless in marriage, fearless in suffering fearless in judgment and that's how I'm going to sort of structure what Peter is saying to us in this text and I think that is critically important for us in a very fearful moment in history for many people in our nation and probably some of us. Last week I was at an event with about 20 pastors from around the UK representing a lot of different geographies and cultures Um, but we were sharing together and a lot of those pastors are actually not just leaders of churches, but leaders of movements of churches or networks of churches. So a lot of awareness of what's been going on in the nation in that room. And basically we spend two days together going around the circle, people sharing about the ministry challenges they face and what's going well and what's been hard and how they're responding. And we pray together. And it was absolutely fascinating as an experience. And uh, I, I felt like the theme that in some ways tied together what a lot of these brothers and sisters were, brothers were sharing is the idea that actually a lot of our people are wrestling with fear and that there is a particular moment where we have a challenge the need for courageous leadership and courage in the church but that actually a lot of people have been rocked by fear over these last couple of years in fact while I was there I got a text from Steve Tibbet a senior pastor uh, here so and he was in South Africa, but he just messaged and you know what he's like if you know him. He's like, what's going on? And well, what's the theme? And I thought, yeah, good question. What's the theme? Yeah, I think the theme is the need that the, the fear in the nation and in the church and the need for courage. And some of that I think is just COVID. Some of that is that we have as a nation, if I hope it's don't want to state it too strongly, but we have, I think, been discipled into fear as a result of the last two years, often for good motives. But what happens is people, instead of using the language that Christians would use, which I think we should, like I I wanna take precautions out of wisdom or out of love and compassion for other people, that's good Christian language, but what actually has happened a lot of the time, people have used rather different language. They've said, my anxiety is, or the thing we really need to fear is this new thing coming, or, I heard one scientist on the news say, my job is to worry about, I think it was new variants. And I remember hearing the phrase thinking, what a way to describe your job. Like that's not Christian language at all. And we, my, job is, my job might well be to protect people or to do what I can to guard against or to, to comfort or to show love and compassion or to serve. But to say my job is to worry, I thought that language has become, over time it takes a spiritual toll. If you encourage people through all the media you have to regard other humans as threats and to tell them you must be afraid, over time that will take root in the hearts of men and women and even in the hearts of godly and faithful believers who don't want to live like that. But over time it it disciples us into being afraid. Stay safe. you know, And just overwhelming message. There There are threats out there and you must fear them. And we can forget in that kind of cultural moment that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our witness because we love not our lives even unto death. That's what Christians are. That's how Christians overcome in the world. And people can forget that if we're not careful. And so some of that is going on in the background. And at the same time, these leaders were commenting, actually another fear, which is a fear of getting things wrong because in this cultural moment, there's quite an unforgiving culture towards people who Say something clumsy or get some, And so many of them were sharing stories about maybe young leaders who don't want to become pastors, perhaps, because they're worried that a comment they made on social media a few years back will come back to bite them in the future. Or teachers who are walking on eggshells with handling difficult questions in the classroom going, can I I say that? Or if I say that, will this happen to me? And a story of a teenage girl who was sat down by her friends at school saying, we are going to we're going to ask you some. We want to have a meeting with you. We're going to ask you some questions about what you think about human sexuality. And if you don't answer in the way, we're like, we, we don't think we can be friends with you. And all of this sort of background, so cancel culture, whatever you call it, it sets background music that puts people on edge and is at risk of discipling the church of Christ into fear. And whether you're a believer or not, you may well know, you may well experience some combination of those things taking place. There may be other factors as well. And if you put all of those things together, I think you have an urgent need in this cultural moment for living fearlessly. And that's what Peter's speaking about in this text. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. and don't fear anything that's frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly didn't obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. And baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of God. Peter calls us to be fearless in different settings in this chapter. He starts with the domestic setting in the home, and then he pans back to social persecution more widely, and then zooms out even further to final judgment and the end of things, and the restoration of the universe and so on. And and he starts in the the very little session in in the very real day-to-day life in marriage. And he calls women to be fearless in marriage. And I love how unexpected it is in the context because most of the passages you no doubt noticed is about submission, most of that opening paragraph. If you're effectively saying, if you're married to an unbelieving husband, submit to him and honour him so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, on reading a line like that. Our Western defences go right up, don't they? And we go, oh, you can't talk like that about, that, that implies men and women are equal. all these things. And, Of course, what can happen is that we can forget that even today in the 21st century, probably the majority of women on earth live in a context where that sort of background is actually a patriarchal culture is exactly the background they're in. And so actually a lot of women converts to Christianity desperately need advice like this because that is their situation, even if it's not all of ours. And then he says, and don't let your beauty come from your braids, your jewellery, or your clothes, but from the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, verse 4. And again, we go, defences go up and say, Peter's saying women have to look frumpy or can't wear nice things. And he's like, no, he's not saying that at all. He's not saying women shouldn't braid their hair or wear jewellery any more than he's saying they shouldn't wear clothes, right? He's just saying you don't get your beauty from those things. He's not denying women should wear clothes or anything. He's just saying... That's not what, let not the beauty come from there. And if you've been following the series, you'll know that Peter loves the contrast between imperishable and perishable. We've seen it a lot in this series already, and here it is again. He said you mustn't effectively invest your adornment, your beauty, in things which perish, like your braids, or your jewelry, or your clothes. You invest your beauty is in what doesn't perish, the imperishable hidden beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And so this is a classic example of how Western people can read the Bible upside down. We read it and go, oh, Peter, he's calling women to be frumpy, passive doormats in their marriages. And actually, that's not what he's saying at all. And that means that when we get to the bit where he talks about being fearless, we're really surprised. Because we think, oh, he's just telling them to be, oh, yes, yes, dear, yes, dear, and looking really dull. And we find it astonishing then when he says, I want you to be like Sarah. I want you to be a a beautiful, brave, strong woman, and I want you to I want you to, to tell you that you will be her children, children, and daughters of Sarah, if you do good and you don't fear anything that's frightening. And one of the ways we know we're reading the passage wrong is if we're reading it, and then we find that, and he goes, what, that sounds completely out of keeping with your previous advice. But if you read it correctly, it isn't at all. You realize it's just addressed in a slightly different culture with different norms than we have. But what we have to see is that his commitment here is to say your example is Sarah, and you must not be afraid. If you're married to an unbelieving husband, you actually want to submit and yield and honor and all of these things, but you must not be afraid. You need to be fearless in your marriage. I'll reflect on that for a moment Biblical women are brave All of them, like pretty much all of them certainly the ones who are held up as examples in any way Eve Sarah Rebecca Miriam Rahab Ruth Abigail. What a woman of courage Esther even more so taking on an em- an Emperor Mary Right? You go all the way through the biblical women you've heard of. They are exemplary women of courage. And Peter is saying women are daughters of Sarah if they do good and they don't fear anything that's scary. Now in our culture, we find that difficult to square with submission to a husband. Because we think bravery means independence and we think submission is weakness. But that's not true at all. Two weeks ago, I came across the story of Aisha, who's a a woman who lives in a city in Central Asia population, about 100,000 people, almost all Muslim. There was one, five years ago, there was one Christian in a city of 100,000 people. And I came across her story. She's got she's an unbelieving husband called Matin, who's just got out of jail. And Aisha has been living for 10 years, married to him as a Christian, basically the ministry of silence, of not like arguing with him and saying, no, you must become a Christian because just, basically in the way she lives, modeling and demonstrating the love of Jesus to him, seeking to win her husband without a word, just like it says in this text. Now that takes deep courage to do as a Christian believer in almost a drop in the ocean, surrounded by people who don't believe the gospel. And then the person who was telling the story wrote this. He said, then I received another WhatsApp message. It was Metin, the husband. He rejoiced to tell me that he'd confessed Christ as Lord. His one request to me, he said, could you send someone to our city so I can be baptised? Today, two years later, I still get messages from Metin, this unbelieving husband as he was, only now with pictures from the small church gathering in their home. I just thought what a wonderful example of exactly what Peter means, of a woman modelling the Christian life to her husband, living with honour and respect of a husband in that kind of culture, and in order that the husband might be one, even without a word, to the ministry of, to, to, through her ministry, to the victory of Jesus and to repenting of his sins and following him. I just thought that was a beautiful example. And that's the kind of setting Peter's probably addressing more than it is the kind of world we live in. And we've just got to translate those principles across and ensure that we are not living fearfully in the context of marriage. And it takes deep courage to lead a submitted life like the one Aisha was living. So Peter starts with fearlessness in marriage, and then he pans back to the challenge of fearlessness in the society more generally when you face suffering. Let me read you verses 14 to 17. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart always honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that's God's will, than for doing evil. Now, this is one of the most practical passages in the whole New Testament on how to live courageously. So, just notice three things here the kind of comments Peter makes in trying to equip the church to live with courage. First, he says, You will be blessed that's one of the things that should undergird courage in the Christian life. You will be blessed even if you will suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed. There's a guarantee there which comes from way back in Genesis as well and Peter's reminding them that Aisha, that woman I just mentioned, or the teacher who's walking on eggshells at school, or the young pastor deliberating pastoral ministry, or the teenage girl I mentioned a few minutes ago, they will be blessed if slandered, if suffering in any way, they will receive blessing. It's right there in the Beatitudes and Jesus says at the start of his ministry, blessed are you if you're persecuted. You'll receive the kingdom. That, that's, it's the dynamic of the gospel, of the kingdom life, that when you suffer for Christ, you will be blessed. That's important to remember. At the same time, secondly, you will be slandered. It's not a question whether or not people will say bad, they might say bad things about you, they might not. So no, 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 you will be slandered do it with gentleness and respect, verse 15, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's basically given that you are going to be slandered if you follow Christ faithfully in an unbelieving world. Of course, people will say about you that you are whatever it might be, and their day might be a You know, you might be an atheist. They were regarded as atheists, a subversive in our day. It might be you're regarded as as a bigot or whatever, but you will be called all kinds of things if you follow Jesus faithfully. And strangely, knowing that that will happen is oddly liberating because you mean, I'm not trying to avoid slander. I know it's going to come at some point. I obviously don't want it, but I know it's going to happen and I just need to be ready for that. So you will be blessed. He says, you will be slandered. And then he says, you must be prepared. In your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence, that word apologia is where we get our word apologetics, if you've heard that word, but to make a defence, an, an apology, a, a, an answer, you might say, to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. So you need to, if you know you're going to be blessed, and you know you're going to be slandered, and now you know you need to be prepared, because people are going to come to you and say, what is this hope you have? And they might say it nicely, like, tell me more about the hope you have and they might say it and like, you are believing this, this and this, what on earth is the deal? I don't like that to the sound of that and they almost cross examine you about it. Now, you need to be prepared for that. And some of that prepar- preparation is intellectual, I expect. And some of us, we hear the word apologetics. If we know the word, we go, oh, this is basically learning answers to difficult questions. And I do a lot of that. I enjoy it. And in fact, if, if that is you know, a couple of books, I just wave around for you because I think they're great. Very recent books in the last year or two. Um, but here, Rebecca McLaughlin, Confronting Christianity, I think is a superb, tough questions that you get asked. You might, depending on your context and who your friends are, you might find this one, Extremely Helpful Urban Apologetics by Eric Mason. Uh, Restoring Black Dignity with the Gospel. There's a lot of great material in there uh, for all sorts of us actually. who find our friends would relate to that. And then the one which I found really great is just addressed to young people, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin again. These are just three books I read in the last couple of years that really help with answers. So that's a good thing to do. And I, I, I just point you in their direction if that's the issue. But I think that Peter isn't mainly talking about intellectual answers. I think he is suggesting that preparing our character is even more important than preparing our arguments. Are we prepared to make a defense? Are we prepared to suffer for doing good? Are, we, are you ready in that sense? Not have you got the best answer to the question, but are you prepared for the fact that you're going to be slandered, you may be persecuted, you may be killed actually. Are you ready for that? And are you prepared in the context of that to speak with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience? Are you honouring Christ the Lord as holy? So here's three questions to help you apply this practically. Question one, just to think this through, right? What increases your courage? What is it for you? What things increase your courage in God? Right, for me, boldly evangelistic friends do. Friends who are just quite unashamed in sharing the gospel. Miracle stories increase my courage. Prayer increases my courage. Well, what's it for you? First question. Second question, what increases your fears? What makes you more afraid? Might be, in my case, managing what other people think of me, spending too much time thinking about other people's perceptions of me. It might be the news, I don't know what it is, but what increases your courage? What increases your fears? And then third question, is there anything you could do this week to help you maximize the first one and minimize the second one? Is there anything with the way you spend your time or your attention, right? What increases your courage? What increases your fear? Just know yourself a bit. And is there anything you could do to make this bigger and this smaller in your life? So there's a practical need for being fearless in suffering and being prepared for the suffering that will certainly come. So we're called to live courageously or fearlessly. In marriage, in suffering, in everything in between. But here's the good news. The reason that you have nothing to fear in suffering or even in marriage is that you have nothing to fear in judgment. All our suffering in this life, Peter says, all the fiery trials Peter's talked about in this letter, and there's plenty of them, all of them are going to be rewarded. All of our righteous actions, our courageous decisions in the face of opposition are going to be vindicated. They're going to be shown to have been right. And a day of judgment is coming when all wrongs done against us are going to be righted and all rights are going to be rewarded. And we have nothing to fear on that day. Jesus was vindicated after his suffering, and because he was, so will we be. That's the good news, and that's where Peter concludes this passage with this very complex section that often people get very stuck on. So I just want to show a summary slide of it, just so you can see the flow of thoughts. But the basic idea, the three huge encouragements here, that Christ suffered like you, verses 17 to 18, and Christ was raised and then went to effectively proclaim that victory to the spiritual powers So I think the spirits in prison are spiritual powers, fallen angels, not dead people. And Noah was saved from judgment through water. And in the same way, as you get baptized, you were saved from judgment through water because Christ was raised and he has been exalted above all spiritual powers. Now, verse 21 to 22, and that ultimately takes us back to the fact that Christ suffered just like you, which is where we begin in chapter 4. And there's three huge encouragements in that section, in the literal sense of encourage. They bring courage to us as we reflect on them. Christ suffered just like you. However much you've been slandered or abused or bullied for your faith, Christ has been there too. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. His purpose in suffering was to bring you back to God. But he's been there and whatever you've experienced, however unfair it's been, Christ has been there too. The second encouragement is that Christ has not only suffered, he has conquered just like you will. Right? All the powers and authorities that are over you, spiritually, physically, politically, all of those powers that are over you are under him. Jesus is at the right hand of God, Peter says, with angels, authorities and all powers having been subjected to him. So anything you might be afraid of, powers that have the power to make your life difficult, they are under the authority of Jesus who has not only been raised but exalted, ascended and given all authority over those powers. And the third encouragement is that Noah was saved through water from judgment, just like you. Noah, this extraordinary example who comes in a little bit out of nowhere at the end of this passage, but Noah believed God when he was told to build the boats because the waters of judgment were coming. He didn't have any much to go on, but he just trusted the words of God. Judgment is coming, build a boat, get your family inside. And he did, and he put all of his hope in this one lifeboat, bringing him to safety. It's like he looked at the rising waters as they began, set everybody in, and he said, if I'm in there, then no matter how much the judgment waters rise and how long this storm lasts and how many other people they take out, I'm not going to survive on my own, but I'll survive if I'm in there. There is safety in that thing that God has provided for my rescue and I'm going to trust it because there is salvation in the ark. And in the same way Peter says, when you called on the name of Christ and were baptized in his name, you also were saved through water from the coming judgment. Right? You if like you looked at the world around you and went, "Man, There is a lot of, there's judgment in this world, there's suffering, there's trials in this world, there's a whole load of things I'm facing that I, on my own, I can't survive against that, but I'm going to put all of my hope in this one man, not an ark anymore, a person, and I'm going to put my trust in him, and I'm going to get in there, and I'm going to bring as many of my family and friends in there as I can, because I know I'll be safe in there from the judgment that's coming. I'm going to be protected no matter what the waters of judgment do to anything else in this world. I will be saved because there is salvation in, this, in Christ, in the cross, in his resurrection. And just like Noah, almost imagine peering out the window saying, wow, were it not for this boat, I'd be ruined. I look at the world, you, Peter says. But like as you get baptized, you are appealing to the confidence you have in Christ, this vessel of safety and a world of judgment, knowing that if you are there, Nothing can get you, you are saved forever because of the mercy of God providing for you a way of escape. You can say, just like Noah did, if I'm in him, I will be safe no matter what. Brothers and sisters, you, you can be fearless in judgment. And because you can, you actually have nothing to fear in suffering or in marriage. You can be fearless in your work, You can be courageous in your marriage, you can be fearless in the face of suffering and opposition or whatever it is, because you know that when all wrongs are righted and they will be, you are safe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us, not just commanding us to be fearless, but for giving us the resources to be fearless, your spirit filling us, the victory of Jesus over all authorities and powers. The presence of your spirit guiding and leading and protecting and shepherding us, and your fatherly love guarding us, and knowing that so that we can know that one day when all things are made right, we will be safe and that we have nothing ultimately to fear, not even death. Thank you so much for your grace to us. Amen.